I think typically we need to do what we know we should do. And so like my finance book, in the, in the beginning of the book, I make the point to my readers that they're going to have to wait a few chapters until we start getting to what looks like the financial advice. And the reason is the early chapters in my book deal with people's hearts. Because if we deal with people's hearts, then we're going to shape the decisions that people make. If we don't deal with people's hearts, you can give people the greatest financial advice in the world. They're not going to make any better financial decisions because their heart isn't into it. Matthew 12, Jesus said, out of the mouth, the heart speaks. What comes out of a man proceeds from the heart. The idea is we make the decisions we do because of our hearts. When life as you know it is flipped upside down, we struggle to make sense of it all. Why would a good God allow this to happen? Hi, I'm Sherry Pilkington, your host of Finding God in Our Pain. In early 2018, the deepest questions of my life erupted when I unexpectedly lost my husband of 32 years. Since then, I've searched the heart of God for what He has to say about pain and suffering. In this podcast, we'll discover how God enters into our pain, shepherds us through our darkest valley, and out into the green pastures once again. I'll bring you firsthand stories from women who will allow us into their authentic struggle, along with professional advice from experts, counselors, and others who can speak to what it looks like to navigate pain. Join me as we discover God's answers to the deepest cries of our shattered heart. Since you made it past the podcast title, There's More to Finances Than Money, I'd like to personally congratulate you because we both know that money is a sensitive subject. It's so vital to life. It's the exchange system we use to live by, and yet no one really wants to take a close look at it. But my guest, author and pastor Scott LaPierre, wants to do more than talk about it. He wants to teach us how to live at peace with our finances through his book and workbook titled Your Finances, God's Way. As a pastor, Scott counsels people through all phases of life and the various challenges that we enter into throughout our life. Based on his experiences, research, and God's word, Scott has written several books that guide us through some of our most challenging roles. For example, marriage or trials such as pain and suffering, how to work and rest. And I think he has a couple of more and you can find them on his website. The links will be in the show notes. For me, the conversation with Scott was so beneficial because it made me realize that throughout my lifetime, when I've entered into these phases and challenges that I'd never faced before, for example, marriage in general, but what about marital conflict or a finance issue or anxiety because I didn't understand how to balance work and rest? I had a lot of questions. This was uncharted territory for me. And my point being, how do we know what to do when we encounter these things for the first time? We don't know what to do unless we educate ourselves, hence the books Scott has authored. He looks through the lens of God's word, the Holy Bible, as the foundational piece to life and then leads us into God's wisdom, knowledge, discernment, understanding. We look at how how can we use God's word as a compass to make the best decisions possible in every phase of life. And in this specific conversation, the context being our finances, here are two things that made an impact on me. And I couldn't help but wonder if they're the two most powerful reasons why we avoid looking at our money. It proves the point that there is more to finances than money. Number one, we do not have a money problem. We have a spending problem. And Scott breaks that down for us. Number two, to look at our finances, the way we spend our money is to look at the value system of the heart. And I know personally that I've had some things revealed Uh, in my life that were uncomfortable. I had to face them and bring them to the Lord and dig into them to find out what's behind that particular heart condition. Today's conversation with Scott is not a deep dive, but his book, Your Your Finance is God's Way, covers so much more than he and I were able to talk about in our brief conversation. Here are a few of the topics that we did cover. What are some of the ways we overspend? His answer was so simple and it made complete absolute sense. And when he was explaining it, I was like, that's so true. How do I miss that? What are some of the heart conditions that plague our spending goals? And again, that's a little uncomfortable because we have to look at things that could potentially be driving our decisions and our goals um, and our spending. Is it ever too late or too early to create a financial plan? I pointed out that there can't be all work and no play. So how do we fold that into our financial goals? And can we ask God for things? And if so, under what conditions? 
We talked about much more with the focus being practical ways to live without debt and save for retirement. But our overall goal is to equip you to live in peace with your money. And how do we live in peace with our money? Scott made a great distinction between money being neither moral nor immoral. It's a resource that God has given us. Therefore, we educate ourselves in a way that we take ownership of this resource and we put our money to work for us. And I don't know about you, but true freedom is when I'm not being controlled and especially by a resource that I should be controlling. I'm so glad you stopped by today, friend. May this conversation add to your desire to understand and live in God's value system of freedom. Welcome, Scott. Thank you for having the courage to talk about God and money, because a lot of times when you put those two words together, people run. So welcome. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Sherry. Glad to be here and have this opportunity. Here's what I used to tell my boys. They're grown men now, have their own families. The secret to getting rich is simple. Spend less than you make. And to me, that's solid principle for life. But it doesn't seem to really be that easy because that's not at all what we see happen. Yeah, that was a profoundly simple but truthful statement that you made that because of the flesh or our sinful nature, our covetousness, our entitlement, different different things we can talk about in this episode, it is much harder to apply to obey than it is to say. So it's more about what we think we want, what we think we deserve, what we think will make us happy. Because a lot of times it's a coping mechanism, I think, too, as far as trying to cover up something, trying to meet a need or whatnot. The Bible talks a lot about money. Why do you think God does that? What did he know about us and money that we have yet to figure out? You know, I really, I don't know how many, how many interviews I've done now. And you are the first person to make that statement, which I really appreciate because unfortunately I think that people view money as something that is unspiritual. I don't want to say unbiblical, like the Bible opposes it, but that it's not a, a prevalent topic for our Christian lives. And you know, if, if like you go into church one day and the pastor says, today, we're going to talk about money. You know, it's almost like people are like, well, I don't, why don't we talk about something spiritual like prayer or worship or forgiveness or, or love or marriage or parenting or all these other things that are in God's word. It kind of begs the question, what determines what is spiritual? I would say God's word determines what is spiritual. If something is in God's word frequently, the more frequently it's in God's word, the more spiritual it is. So God is the one who determines for us what is spiritual and money finances is one of the most common topics in scripture, especially in some books like Proverbs, more of Jesus's parables dealt with finances than any other topic except heaven and hell. And so when you think When God came from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus Christ and spent more of his ministry teaching than doing anything else, and the second most common topic he taught on was money, that tells us how important money is. And so whenever the Bible makes something important, we must make it important. I mean, that's what it means to, to, let's say, do things God's way, which is my brand, or that's what it means to be a Christian or follower of Christ, is to emphasize in our lives those things that Christ emphasized in his teaching and ministry. So what do you think the disconnect is? Why are we not making the connection? I think it might seem kind of amoral to us. And there is a sense in which money is amoral. And what I mean by that is is money is not moral or immoral. Money is a resource. It's a tool. It's like your home, your car. We have this problem where we make things immoral that are amoral. And we make things that are amoral, moral, or immoral. So for example, guns. our, Our world can act like guns are bad. Guns are amoral. Well, sometimes our world acts like you know, money is bad. If you have more money, you're worse than people who have less money. Like rich people are bad, poor people are good. We, we do it either way. The Bible presents money very amorally. It's what you do with money that is the matters. And so there are, there are rich people who are incredible. And I'm not trying to justify you know, being rich, we have nine children. We're on a single income pastor salary. I don't need to, <laughs> you know, we're not, we're not <laughs> rolling in the money, but I'm just making the point that there can be rich people who are very generous and there can be poor people who are very stingy. Conversely, there can be rich people who are very stingy and poor people who are very generous. So it's really an issue of what you do with the money that God's given you and why, why the disconnect. I just think we don't think of money in terms of being spiritual, but money is a stewardship. And when we understand that, and what I mean by stewardship, I'm assuming most of your listeners probably know, but a steward is an individual who doesn't own anything. A steward is someone who manages something. And not only is money, our relationship to money, a stewardship, but every Everything on this side of heaven is a stewardship. So a moment ago, I mentioned that I have nine children. 
Well, what that means is I am a steward of those nine children. They don't belong to me. I can't create life. I did not bring them in, into existence. I mean, there's a lot of people who try to have children and can't have children, right? So we recognize that God is the author of life. My marriage, my wife, who, who I adore, God's graciously given me one of his daughters to spend my life with, but my marriage is a stewardship. My pastorate is a stewardship. My home that I'm in right now is a stewardship, our vehicles. And these are all things God expects us to use for his glory and honor. And if we understand that finances are a stewardship, then suddenly we recognize we're not dealing with our money. We're dealing with God's money. And the nice thing about that is it can actually, for the person that says, well, giving is very difficult for me. Well, it can be a paradigm shift when you understand you're not really giving away your money. You're actually giving away God's money for the person who's wasteful. Now, suddenly they recognize they're not wasting their money. They're actually wasting, wasting God's money. So it's really important to view every cent that we spend as a spiritual decision. And many people don't, don't think that way. They think I'm spiritual because of how much I pray. I'm spiritual because of how much I read the word. I'm spiritual because of how much I go to church. And that's all true, but I'm also spiritual based on how I spend. I heard a quote one time, and I think there's a lot of truth in it, that if you really want to know a lot about people, you look at two things. You look at their checkbook and you look at their calendar, because then you see how they spend their two most important resources, their money and their time. And, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. I agree. Those are the two priorities you make as far as where your money goes, where you spend your time. And time is money. Money is time. Just a minute ago, when you were talking about rich people who are stingy and poor people who are generous and vice versa, and it made me think of God's principles, wherein he says, give to the storehouse. Mm -hmm. Do you think that even non-believers can benefit from God's value system when he tells you, if you do this with money, if you're generous, then you get more. Do you think that even the unbelievers can benefit from? I, I absolutely do. And I'll back up just to get a little momentum into your question. If we divide grace into two categories, the most common grace we know is saving or salvific grace, the grace that saves. By grace, through faith, you have been saved. That not of yourselves is a gift to God, you know, not of works as any man should boast. So that's saving grace. That's the grace that saves us from the penalty our sins deserve. Well, there's also what's known as common grace, which is the grace that is poured out on every individual who has ever lived, even the most Christ-rejecting, God-hating person. Jesus kind of talks about this when he said that the rain falls and the rain falls and the sun shines on the just and the unjust. The idea is if you're in this world that God has created, you experience many of the blessings of it, regardless of how you feel toward God. And I became a Christian in my early 20s. I'm, I'm not proud of the life I lived prior to conversion. But I look back and I still was able to experience many of God's blessings prior to conversion as an unbeliever. And so that's common grace. One of the other common graces is that when we apply the principles in God's word, we benefit or reap the benefits to continue that, that kind of theme of reaping and sowing. We reap the benefits of what we've sown because the principles in God's word work regardless of whether someone is a believer or unbeliever. And what that means is, Generally, if you're a forgiving person, whether you're an unbeliever or not, people will be more forgiving toward you. If you're gracious, if you're gentle, you can generally expect to reap what you've, what you've sown. Like in marriage, if you take the principles in God's word, the biblical marriage principles in God's word, and you apply them to your marriage, even as an unbeliever, you're going to reap the benefits of that because God has said, or God created us, and he knows what men desire and what women desire. And if a man loves his wife as Christ loves his wife sacrificially, like Christ did the church, even as an unbeliever, his marriage will benefit. And if a wife respects her husband, even if she's an unbeliever and the wife and the husband is an unbeliever, they're going to benefit because men want to be respected. And so, yeah, I, I completely agree. And if you take the principle, the wisdom, like the book of Proverbs filled with wisdom from beginning to end on all of these different topics, and if you take those principles and you apply them, whether to your finances, whether to your relationships, what, you know, to your decision-making, you're going to reap the benefits of that. Speaking of men and women, what is the difference between a woman's attitude about money and a man's? Both men and women can struggle with pride. Both men and women can struggle with being deceitful. And I think what a stereotype, which I actually disagree with, is that women are going to typically be worse with money 
or spendier than, than men and men are going to be more frugal. And that's not true. I've, I've counseled as many couples who have found the husband to be less frugal or waste more wasteful and the woman to be wiser, hopefully where a woman has strengths and the husband has weaknesses, then they complement each other. I mean, that's what it means to have a complementarian, not C-O-M-P-L-I, but C-O-M-P-L-E marriage. And if a man is bad with finances, then hopefully the woman is the one who manages the checkbook. It seems to be a, a mark of security. And I wondered if that was for women in general, that it's a mark of security or a marker. I, I, I think it can be. I think for many men, our security is bound up in, in some other things, like it could be our work. For women, it might be a little more bound up at times in what they buy, how they look. Interestingly, one of the biggest regrets people have is a purchase they made that they wish they hadn't made. If you talk to people about their biggest regrets, uh, their, the most anxiety they have, it'll often be associated with purchases or money that they, that they spent that, or that they feel like they wasted. What are some of the ways that we overspend? Yeah, good. So that's one of my one of my most common things I talk about when I'm dealing with people in the United States, which is the people I deal with primarily. So if you're listening to this and you're in the United States, you are one of the wealthiest people in the world, and you're probably one of the wealthiest people throughout human history. Now, there could be an exception. There could be someone listening to this, and they have less income. They've been struggling. But for the most part, it's important to understand that in our country, and this is the truth, even the people who are considered poor or who live below the poverty line are generally wealthier than the people throughout the rest of the world and almost all of the people throughout human history. So in other words, you could be considered poor in our country and still be considered wealthy compared to much of the rest of the world. And if you think about it, even the, you know, what's the poverty line, 30, 30 something thousand for a family of four or something like that. And many of those people are still gonna enjoy a cell phone, television, a vehicle. Just to own a vehicle puts you in this upper, in this upper echelon. Well, the reason that I'm stressing, stressing this is that most people don't have an income problem, they have spending problems. And that's really important to understand because if you think you have an income problem when you have spending problems, you're gonna put the blame or the fault in the wrong place. You're going to be blaming the amount of money you make versus blaming the decisions you make with the money that you make. I just got an email from someone today and I'm supposed to meet with them next week to talk about finances. I'm going to tell them you need to bring in a budget and bring in where you're spending money. And if they're like most of the other people that I've counseled, they're probably going to do this. They're going to look at their paycheck. They're going to look at the amount they spend maybe on their house or on their vehicles. If they have a vehicle payment, and that's another kind of pet peeve of mine. I don't think you should have a vehicle payment. You should try the best you can to be debt-free and buy used vehicles with cash if you can and avoid a monthly payment for a car. When they come in and they look at their finances and they look, then they're going to say, I don't know where the rest of the money is going. I don't know why we're having trouble making ends meet. And it comes from spending problems. And, and one of the first most common spending problems for people is small purchases, all the small purchases that add up. Just a, a simple example I often use is the gentleman that, or woman that buys coffee on the way to work, you know, four or $5. It doesn't seem like a lot. They do this four or five times per week. And they don't know that over about five years, that's $7,000 that was just spent on coffee when you do the math. And that's just for coffee. So if you start adding in, going to the movies, going out to eat, picking up those unnecessary items when you go to Walmart or shopping on Amazon Prime. And these are all things we do, we do too. It ends up being an incredible amount of money that is spent on small purchases. And the reason the small purchases are so easy to make is it's like, it's very easy to say, well, it's only 10 bucks or it's only 20 bucks or it's only 30 bucks. It's a lot harder to make that purchase of, you know, 20 or $30,000. But honestly, Sherry, when I talk to people who are struggling financially, there can be the person who looks back and says, you know, I wish I hadn't spent that $50,000 on that, or I wish I hadn't wasted that $70,000, but that's incredibly rare. Usually it's the people who are struggling because of all of those, those small purchases. I was just in Walmart the other day, only needed a few things, couldn't find a few things, but left with almost $250 worth of stuff. The grandbaby <laughs> needed this, the grandbaby needed that. Oh, this is too cute to pass. Yeah. So I, I appreciate your humility in sharing that. And I think your listeners, probably all of them who just heard you say that, if they're honest, identify with that as well. 
happens way too often. That's pretty powerful if you look at the problem being a spending problem versus an income, because I do think people focus on the fact that I'm not making enough money. I need a better paycheck. I need a, another job. And uh, what do you want to say? A raise or a promotion where you hope you get the raise associated with it, not just the responsibilities that makes you start looking at your, your responsibility in this portion, uh, mm-hmm. in this struggle. Tell me a little bit about the tithe, 10%. People I hear, it's just this, or it's just for that. Oh, and no, it's only for giving to the church. No, it's plus anything that you do outside the church. Then some say, no, it's tithe only. Then you give extra outside. Can you give us any clarity on how, as Christians, we should tithe? Good. Well, this is something I learned surprisingly that the New Testament or new under the New Covenant, Christians are not commanded to, to give 10%. It's we are commanded to give, but there's not a percent put on us in the new in the New Testament. I think many people would be surprised to know that even in the Old Testament, where the tithe was part of the Mosaic Law, there were actually multiple tithes that pushed the percent a lot closer to 25%. It was about one-fourth of your income was to be given. And so if someone said to me, well, I tithe because of what the Old Testament says, I would almost ask him, well, which tithe do you follow? Do you just choose one of them or do you end up giving all the tithes? You know, So in the New Testament, many people should probably give more than 10%. God would probably expect because of how well we're doing. The New Testament, the word tithe only occurs a couple times, never in any of the epistles that command giving. And if someone disagrees with this, Look at the epistles, which are the letters of instruction for church age believers, such as us. You are not going to see one single verse that commands the giving of tithe. You're not even going to see the word tithe mentioned, except once in the book of Hebrews, where it says that Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek, which is just recording an account, a situation that took place versus commanding us to do anything. And then in the gospels, there's a little discussion of tithes, but that's because the new covenant hasn't been instituted yet at the last supper. I would encourage people to actually view 10% as more of a more of a floor than a ceiling. In other words, you're going to build up from there versus come come down from there. Now there could be a scenario if there's a father who's lost his job and they can barely make ends meet or there's a medical situation and the bills are paying up where you're going to give less than 10%, but for most people because of how wealthy we are, we should probably be giving more than 10%. And what we give is a good reflection of our relationships with Christ. What we do with our finances says a lot about our relationships with the Lord. In fact, it wouldn't even be too much to say that we do what we do with the money we have because of our relationships with Christ. And it's our relationships with Christ that's going to influence our spending, our saving, and especially our giving to to the church. A minute ago, you were talking about the ways that we spend our money. What's the best way to analyze our spending and how often should we analyze our spending? I don't think most people analyze their spending to, to be candid with you. I think if, if many people did analyze their spending, they would be shocked, not, not by their selfishness or their greed or something like that. I just mean shocked by where their money's going to see how much of it is being spent on whether it's entertainment or pleasurable things. And so when you say how often should people analyze their spending, for many people, it's like, they need to analyze it at least once because they haven't really done that before. Take a look at your accounts and see where your money is going and set up set up a budget and make sure you're going to stick with that budget. And you, you made that statement at the beginning that spend more than you make. If we just use three simple examples, many people spend more than they make. And if they buck against that and say, no, I don't, if you have debt, then what that means is you have spent more than you've made. Anyone that has debt spent at some, at least one time more than they made, or they would not be in debt. And I'm not saying that people can ever have debt, or I'm not saying if you have debt, you need to repent or something like that. Just briefly, I would say that you shouldn't have debt for anything except a mortgage, or if there was some disastrous situation like an accident or a job loss or you know the cancer diagnosis and the medical bills pile up, those are reasonable scenarios for debt. But most people find themselves in debt, not not because of situations they couldn't prevent, but because of situations they could prevent. They just wanted this vehicle, they wanted this vacation, and they were going to go into debt for it. So if you make $5,000 and you spend more than that, you're incurring debt. 
But many people kind of look and they're like, we make $5,000. They'll say this and they'll, they'll think they're doing a good job. They'll say, I make $5,000. I just need to make sure I don't spend more than $5,000. And they'll literally spend just about as much as they make. There are two problems with that. If you spend what you make, you're not paying off your debt and you're not saving. You're not building for retirement. And Proverbs 6 discusses the ant who is applauded. I mean, when God talks about an ant, you know, what ways are we supposed to be like the ant? The ant saved, the ant prepared for the future, the ant stored up. There's all these ways that saving is applauded through the ant's behavior that we can learn from. So if you're making 5,000 and spending 5,000, you don't look like the ant. Basically, you're not saving. Now, if you make 5,000 and you can spend 4,000, then that's $1,000 extra per month that you can put toward debt and savings. And, and some people say, well, if I have that $1,000, should I put it toward debt or toward saving for retirement? I would, I'm generally a fan of splitting. Um, if you can max your IRA for the year, which is 5,500, I think for, for each person, and then put the extra money toward your debt, I think that's going to be a home run. The, an, an IRA is an incredible investment tool that you know has great tax benefits. And I would encourage everyone to try to max their IRA each year if they can and then put the extra money toward debt. So do we need a financial advisor? I don't think you do. I do think there can be some situations that you might want to talk to a CPA. You might want to talk to an accountant and they might be able to help you. But most of the, most principles are pretty simple. The ones that are in God's word are simple. The real issue for most of us, Sherry, it's not a lack of knowledge. It's an issue of self-control. It's not that we don't know what to do. It's that we just don't want to do it. I'm not, I'm not dealing with people who are sitting back saying, oh, I just don't know what to do. I'm dealing with people that don't want to sacrifice, that don't want to give up certain things, that don't want to exhibit the self-control that would allow them to improve financially. And so when you say to me, do we need a financial advisor, which I think is a great question, what you're basically asking is, do we need someone to tell us what to do? I don't typically think that's the case. I think typically we need to do what we know we should do. And so like my finance book, in the, in the beginning of the book, I make the point to my readers that they're going to have to wait a few chapters until we start getting to what looks like the financial advice. And the reason is the early chapters in my book deal with people's hearts. Because if we deal with people's hearts, then we're going to shape the decisions that people make. If we don't deal with people's hearts, you can give people the greatest financial advice in the world. They're not going to make any better financial decisions because their heart isn't into it. Matthew 12, Jesus said, out of the mouth, the heart speaks. What comes out of a man proceeds from the heart. The idea is we make the decisions we do because of our hearts. So if, if I want to see people improve financially, or maritally, I take the same approach, whether I'm counseling finances or counseling marriage, we need to deal with people's hearts because that's what's going to allow them to handle their marriage or their finances better. That's pretty powerful because you're getting to the root of why we may be using money as a tool to avoid something in our life or a way mm -hmm. to give us value or however we're attaching our heart condition to our money. So ultimately, like you're saying, you can tell people all day long what they need to be doing with their money. But if the heart's not in on believing or agreeing with the value of it, then it's falling on deaf ears. Yeah, I think that's great. Because if you think about the things that plague us with our finances, I'll just give you some examples. Covetousness, discontentment, envy. We look at what other people have, and maybe we were content with our, with our house, but then we saw someone else's house, or we were content with our car until we saw someone else's car. Discontentment, envy or jealousy, pride. Sometimes we just want the bigger or the better because of our, our security. You mentioned this earlier, and I appreciated that. You recognize that people's security is bound up in what they own. So that's an issue. That's an issue of pride, entitlement. I deserve this. I should have this. And the list could go on. And every single thing that I just mentioned is an issue of the heart. In other words, all those things affect our spending, but they come from the heart. And so it's actually our heart that is determining how we spend our money and why it's so important to, to shape it. And that's why, you know, when people are dealing with covetousness, greediness, selfishness, entitlement, you don't look and tell them, hey, stop spending money the way you're spending money. You deal with their heart. And then that changes the way that they're spending or saving or giving. So we come from this where we think it's money, a money problem, but it's really a spending problem that it's really taking responsibility and that that backs down to a heart condition. Well said, that's perfectly said. Yep. It, it's so the, a heart problem. The core is the heart. Mm -hmm. 
And God knows us so well with regard to that. I hate the word budget. It's overwhelming. I look at all the categories and I'm thinking to myself, do I even have enough money? I mean, can I even fill this stuff in? So do you have any advice on using a budget? Maybe some simple steps to start a budget? Three areas we need to focus on first. Sure. To, to kind of help people appreciate a budget, I'll use kind of an analogy here. I don't want to sound harsh to you or to any of your listeners, but the reason that generally we don't like budgets is we don't like boundaries. We don't like rules. We don't like being told what we, we don't want to be confined and feel like we can't do this or that. We can't spend the way we want. And a budget basically says, no, it says you're not going to spend more than this. It puts a ceiling or a fence. And we don't like that. We, we want freedom. And all of us do. I mean, if one person doesn't struggle with finances, if they don't struggle with a budget, they have struggles in other areas of life. And so nobody is above this because of our parents, Adam and Eve, we have the sinful nature that tempts us. We have flesh that tempts us to live in certain ways outside of the guidelines or boundaries God has given us. If you kind of think about a train, when is a train the freest? You know, is it free when it goes off the tracks? No, the train is free when it's on the tracks and it's being guided and directed. The car that goes off the road didn't become free when it went off the road. And so a budget like God's word or like many things in life is kind of those tracks that keeps us, that actually keeps us free and doesn't cause us to become slaves. Well, that's kind of the same with a budget. It's giving you tracks that help you after you've made your plan, what you're going to do. Now you need, and you can be encouraged. So your question was, how can we follow the budget? Well, we can encourage ourselves that this is what is going to allow us to be free, spend money in a way that we won't have regret later, save money in a way we won't have regret later. Many people, like I said earlier, one of their most common regrets is they didn't, is something financial. Well, it's often they wish they would have started saving earlier. You know, it's, an, it's great when people prepare for retirement, but there's a world of difference between the person who starts preparing in their 20s versus the person who started preparing in their 50s. Because the most, the most important tool we have regarding money is not money, it's time. The time value of money is an incredible resource. And so, you know, the different charts, and I've got some in my book that reveal how much more money you can make if you start saving and investing earlier because of the time value of money. And maybe a lot of us remember that that from high school, but it's as true today as it was then. (laughs) God's value system really flips everything upside down for us. For instance, these boundaries that a budget create these tracks that we get to sit on really is freedom. Once again, God's value system is for our freedom. That's what Jesus said. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. But what does that mean? The truth is what gives us the the rules or boundaries that allow us to live a fuller life. I despise the prosperity gospel. I never tell people that if you follow Christ, you're going to live a problem-free, stress-free life. That's not it. Jesus said, in the world, you will have tribulation. I mean, this is your, your podcast about being, about being beyond adversity. And so you deal with people regularly that have experienced trials. And so being a Christian doesn't mean a trial-free life, but it does mean a life of peace and joy, assuming we are keeping ourselves within those rules or precepts, those commands and principles that God has given us in his word. There's a sense, Sherry, that's what I've kind of given my life to. I preach God's word week by week. I started publishing these books, these God's way books to basically help people as practically and simply as I can live God's way, whether in their marriage, whether with their finances, another book on work and rest, a book on trials to see exactly how we're going to apply God's word to every area of life, whether finances, whether our suffering, I'm convinced even in our trials and suffering, God wants what's best for us and wants to use it for good. Kind of that saying, if we'll become, we can become better or bitter. If we're submitted to God, I trust you. I don't understand this, why this has been introduced to my life, but I believe you're good. And I believe you're for me. We can become better through that. Totally agree with that because God showed me his presence in the darkest time of my life. I pray that nothing ever rivals that. He does care. He does enter into that pain. He does guide. He does comfort. So even in the times when life is very difficult, when it doesn't seem fair, he's already working on the redemption of it. If we'll let him. Mm-hmm. Is it ever too late or too early to create a financial plan? No, it's definitely not. Ideally, the earlier you can start, the better. And that's the truth for everyone whether you're in your 20s or whether you're in your 50s or 60s. When I say the earlier you start, I mean I almost mean that literally. You know, we have nine kids and we've opened accounts, checking accounts and IRAs for almost all of them. And so we I think we start at like 5 or 6. And it doesn't mean they know what's going on. It doesn't mean that they're following everything or looking at the statement when the statements come in, but actually 
many of our kids who are like eight and nine, when they get their bank statement, they're excited to see it and see how that amount has grown. And one of the, one of the nice reasons to do that is then when your children get a cash gift for Christmas or birthday, they're kind of excited to put that in their account because they want to see that account grow. And we've even invested some of our kids that have a few thousand dollars. I said, if you'll let me invest this for you, then I believe I'm going to give it back to you in a few years because you're not going to need it. I'm going to take care of you in these years. You're going to, you're going to get it back in a few years and it's going to be much bigger than it would be if you just let it sit in your savings account. So we think it's, we think it's really important to get our children interested in money management at a very young age. That is a great way to engage them and get them excited about money versus depressed about it and don't want to look at it, don't want to think about it, but still know you need it, work for it. When I use the word financial plan, what does that mean to you? Does it mean a budget? Does it mean analyzing? If you're a Christian, then hopefully it means something different than if you're not a Christian. And so the, the non-Christian is going to look at their finances completely differently than a Christian is going to look at their finances. The, the non-Christian has no eternal mindset. They have no eternal perspective. They're not thinking beyond this life. It's basically, how can I set myself up for the next, you know, 20, 30, 40 years of life? The Christian looks and says, how can I set myself up for the next life? How can I set myself up for eternity? So when they're doing their financial planning, hopefully their financial planning is for eternity. And Jesus, he said, you know, store up your treasure in heaven, not on earth where moth and rust don't destroy. And so the financial planning for a Christian is basically answering this question, how can I use money in the way that most honors God? And it doesn't mean that we never spend money on ourselves. It doesn't mean that we don't save up for retirement for ourselves or anything like that. But it says that a wise man is going gonna, is gonna to provide an inheritance for his children's children. Well, the only way you're going to be able to give your children's children or your grandchildren an inheritance is if you've saved up an amount of money to give to your children. And if you have also trained your children financially so that they would save money and then give it to their children. But the fact is you can't spend everything. You have to be saving. And so to say that we have an eternal mindset or a heavenly mindset versus an earthly one isn't to say we never save any, any money or anything like that, but it is to say we're looking to apply God's principles to our finances, asking what his word says about money, and then striving to steward it that way. I'm thinking about it can't be all work and no play. What percentage can we allow ourselves to have a little fun in life? I think that's a great question. And I think that there's, uh, by extension, the command to take a day off, a day of rest, looks to God's desire for us to relax and enjoy ourselves. And I'm going to put people in two categories here. If you still have debt, then you don't have the same liberty to spend money as a person who, who has paid their debt off or maybe has saved or maxed their IRA. If we deal with a person who still has debt, they can enjoy things. They can, let's say, reward themselves. Maybe you get one vehicle paid off. Well, go, go ahead and reward yourself. I'm not going to tell you exactly how much to spend. Hopefully, you don't spend so much money that you put yourself back in debt and ruin Available what you just un- yeah. But the two words that I would encourage people to look at, there's a lot of things you can do for free. You can go on a vacation and you don't have to spend thousands of dollars. It doesn't have to be exotic. I mean, what is it that makes a vacation a vacation? Hopefully it's resting. Hopefully it's being with family or being with friends. Hopefully it's being with your children or your spouse. And I don't think you have to go someplace super exotic and expensive to do that. And so if you haven't paid off debt, look for a vacation or look for a way to reward yourself, whether it's going to a museum, um, whether it's going to a zoo, whether it's going camping, whether it's going uh, you know, on a trip to visit a park, or these are all things that don't cost a whole lot of money. If you have paid off your debt, then I think you can reward yourself and take a little more liberty, a little more license with your finances. One of the things my wife told me, and I, I hesitate to say this, so you don't think more of me than you should, but she said, if you got like a billion dollars, you probably wouldn't live much differently. And I took that as a compliment because I think Katie thought the car I drive or the, the house we live in is not, not a huge deal to me as long as it can take care of my family and stuff. So hopefully when you do pay off your debt, your, your lifestyle doesn't change a whole lot because you're committed to modesty and moderation. And I think those are Christian principles. I don't think Christ wants people living very extravagantly or luxuriously. It's just not a very good testimony. And it's not say we need to be poor. I don't, I don't think that either. There's two ditches. One ditch is you live super extravagantly. And then the other ditch is you think that, that the Lord wants you to live like you're in some third world country and you can barely survive. The Lord doesn't want that for us either. And so 
the middle ground is kind of like, I think about when Elijah was with that woman and he filled her pot with oil, it was never overflowing, but she had enough. Now, Elijah didn't say, well, God wants you struggling the rest of your life, barely making it. You can't eat. You can barely, you know, you can't put food on the table and you're pretty much destitute. There's nothing in scripture that would cause believers to think that God wants that for us. But there's principles in scripture that also make it seem like he doesn't want us living super extravagantly, though, that modesty, moderation are Christian principles that should be applied to our lives. I've heard it said often, and I believe this, where if we are blessed, if we say we're blessed in specific areas or in general, then we should be using that blessing to bless others. Mm-hmm. So God blesses us and we turn in and bless others around us. So now we're talking about even redefining needs as far as what do we really need to spend our money on? We're redefining vacations or redefining our priorities. And again, this is going to reveal a heart condition. That's something you have to take to the Lord or maybe even counseling. Do people get counseling? I mean, I got an email this morning from, from a couple that said, can you meet with us? We want to talk about our finances and, and have you help us. There's a, there was a couple of verses that I think apply to what you were saying or kind of our discussion. This is Proverbs 30 verses seven through nine. I think they're, they're pretty incredible verses that strike this balance between these two ditches. And it, Proverbs 30 verse seven, verse uh, seven through nine, two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full or rich and deny you and say, who is the Lord? In other words, lest I have so much that I don't depend on the Lord anymore, or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So he says, mm-hmm. he says, don't give me poverty, but don't give me riches. Give me the food that's needful let my, you mentioned a moment ago, let my necessities or essentials be met. I don't want to be full and deny you or rich and deny you say, who's Lord. I don't want to be poor and steal to make ends meet and profane the name of God. And so that just strikes that, that nice balance there. You mentioned what, what exactly our essentials are. And and in first Timothy, I think it's verse six or chapter six, verse eight, Paul says, if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. That might not sound like a lot. The word clothing, it's actually a Greek word that refers to, it can also refer to housing. So basically Paul says, if you have a house, if you have food and you have clothing, you should be able to be content with those. But what that also means is if you don't have food, you don't have a house, you don't have clothing, God is not expecting you to be content. Or in other words, he is expecting you to ask for more because you don't have those things that he said you should have to be content. But if you do have those things, which some, some people haven't had, even in our world today, then you're not expected to be content. But people say, what should, what should I be content with? How much do I need? First Timothy 6, 8 answers that for us, for us perfectly. If you have food and clothing with these, I will be content. I remember one time, it's been years ago now, and I was telling the Lord, I was pouring my heart out to the Lord about how I didn't have enough money. And I needed this and I needed that. And it came down to like lipstick or something. And I was like, Lord, I, I want the nice lipstick. And I heard in my spirit and you can have the nice lipstick. I'm like, awesome. And then I heard, but not all five, like, you know, so I was thinking, oh, wait, I, I don't need more need than five one. colors. Right. Yeah. And five different colors. So he was really bringing me back to this place of he's not saying be cheap or chintzy, you know, like you're, you referred to third world, but he's saying you don't need an excess of that. And so that was a, a lesson for me as far as extravagantly over needy with mm-hmm. stuff. And I, I did at that time in my life realize that God's never going to let a lipstick or a pair of jeans or a coffee or whatever it is that we feel like we have to spend our money on. He's never going to let that satisfy us anyway. So we can chase that all we want like an addict and it'll, mm-hmm. you'll never get the fix you're looking for. I, I think families should try to talk about the word of God during the week. I try to discourage people from being just like kind of Sunday morning Christians. And it's not like we're every conversation in the house has to be about the word of God or we're, you know, Mm -hmm. spending hours in prayer every day. But if you have time together as a family and hopefully you do, Mm -hmm. then hopefully many of those conversations are about spiritual topics or about the word of God. And so yesterday we're at the table having lunch together because I'm fortunately as a pastor, I have a flexible schedule and much of the time I can, I can work at home and I'll try to join my family for meals. And we were talking about the different ways that we can have a bad testimony regarding our appearance. And, and one obvious way is maybe, or not maybe, but a modesty, right? My kids said that quickly. They know that women aren't, and I suppose men, but not supposed to dress immodestly. It causes someone else to lust and is a bad testimony. And then 
another way we can have a bad testimony with our appearance is being really extravagant or overly concerned with our appearance. But the other bad testimony is to be shabby looking or unkept. It's a bad testimony of Christ. God is a God of order. It doesn't mean you're going to be fancy, but it looks bad when we're sloppy and, and, and shabby looking. And so that's, that's kind of what you're saying. I mean, you know, you can wear makeup, you just, there's probably a, a healthy amount. And then there's an amount that's, you know, you're preoccupied with it. So I, I like the way you said that. I might even try to remember that. You can, you, you know, the Lord, you said you wanted your lipstick. He just didn't want you to have five different, five colors of it. <laughs> yeah. I remember so one time good. too, I was asking, I was like, I wanted a uh, home and I was like, Lord, can I look on Zillow for a home? And I heard my spirit. Yes. And I'm like, Oh gosh. So I get all excited. I go looking at what, what I want. And I'm like, I can't afford this. And he said, I know. I was like, wait, I, I thought you said I could look. He said, I did, but I said, I can't afford it. He said, I know, but I had fun looking. <laughs> I was like, okay, Lord. But anyway, just another so check. I take it you looked and you ended up not buying or moving into something new. That's correct. When you looked, did you find it make you, did it affect your contentment with your current house? You know, that's a good question. When my husband passed away, I guess I was looking to, um, I don't know. You, I see him everywhere. I, so I was looking really to escape. I was running from something actually. Okay. Okay. I mean, if <laughs> I don't, I don't want to pry too much, but if your husband yeah. passed and I don't, I don't know if, if there was some desire to be in a different home, if that's what you meant or something like that, but I'll generally discourage people. There's a lot of reasons not to, not to look around. If you live in a house, then it might not be good to go drive down that street that has a whole bunch of fancy houses because then suddenly you're discontent with your house. If you have a car that you've always been content with, and then was it really good to go look at a bunch of other fancy houses? But some people can just appreciate stuff. Some people can just appreciate gorgeous homes and they don't get stirred up. It doesn't make them discontent. Some people can appreciate the beauty of certain things or the structures and it doesn't, but for other people, it can cause them, it can be an issue for them. So that's just why I was wondering. It wasn't a, wasn't a criticism. It was more a curiosity. Well, I can see that though, because if you do a test drive for a new car, boy, you're committed. You get in there, you smell that new car and it drives. They always drive nice, right? Because it's not your car. It's not your old pair of tennis shoes. It's the new mm -hmm. pair of tennis shoes. I get that point completely. With regard to estate planning, at what point do you step in to, to do something like that? Do you wait till you have assets or do you do it as, because for, for me, when my husband passed and it was a God thing because you couldn't really talk to him about funerals or estate planning or anything like that. And I won't even go into the whole detail of how the Lord paved the way for it just to naturally happen. It was six months or seven months before he actually passes that we had sat down and do that. And it was such a gift for me because I was able to focus on grieving. I didn't have to make any decisions. I didn't have to sell anything. I could just grieve. I consider that now a gift for your loved one. But at what point do you need to do an estate? or will. Mm -hmm. The older you are, the more urgency there is. I mean, obviously people can, something unexpected can happen. You know, we have a young, young mother in our church that found out she had stage four cancer and it's, it's been a heartbreaking couple of years, but that's pretty rare. We, we understand the average life is, you know, mid, mid seventies or maybe it's increased a little bit. So the older you are, the more, the more urgency there is to make sure that you have set things up to prepare to, to care for your spouse should something happen. And it sounds like your husband did a great job. I mean, that's one way for husbands to love their wives. First Peter 3, 7 says, dwell with your wife in an understanding way. And your husband graciously set things up nicely for you. I think that says a lot about him. My wife doesn't work. So there's not a lot of income or actually there's no income from her. She's a great blessing taking care of her home and our kids. But because I'm the one that brings the income in, we've got a life insurance policy that would hopefully take care of my wife. And I'm assuming our church would probably step up if mm -hmm. something was to, to happen for me, but you're giving me a nudge because I know I need to go set up our trust, a living trust, mm -hmm. so that if something happened to me, my wife doesn't have to go to courts or deal with a bunch of headache kind of stuff. Hopefully that she would have as nice of a situation as you had if, if something happened to me, like when you, when your husband passed. So I do think it is a good idea to do that sooner than and the more children, more dependents you have, the more people you need to worry about. So with nine kids, okay. if it was just me by myself or just me and my wife, probably wouldn't even be that big a deal, but the more kids you have, the easier you want things to be for them if something happens to you. So I think probably once you start having other dependents, so for most people, that's going to be late twenties, thirties, and obviously, you know, after that, then you have even more dependence. Maybe you start having grandchildren. And so you're thinking about them. So it's not necessarily a, the question of, do you have anything worth putting into a will? It's basically to put things in order. Should something happen to you? I, I think you said that really well. I think you said that better than, than my response because 
it pretty much almost everyone has some assets or something that is going to be left after they pass away. Rare is the person that doesn't have anything to, to be left behind. And so I wouldn't look at it and just think, well, I don't have enough. It's not worth it. I would look at it like I want things to be peaceful as possible and much of a blessing. I don't want more stress added to, to these people I love when something happens to me or if something happens to me. Shifting gears a little bit, should we be using cash only? Do you mean, do we use like credit cards or debit cards or something like that? Is it better to use cash? Because we're trying to go into a cashless society. Oh, okay. I don't like to carry around cash because I think it's a little easier to spend. And I just don't like the bills and the change and breaking 20s or 30s or something something like that. That's more of a preference issue. I did t- say earlier that I don't think we should go into debt for anything except for a mortgage, try to pay off any other debt as soon as possible. Now, interestingly, I was recently talking with some people. This is probably like nine months ago. I've used debit cards. I never, never had a credit card. And some, some friends of mine who were equally anti-debt said, hey, have you ever thought about a credit card for the cash back benefits? And I thought, you know what? I'm spending money. I would pay the credit card off. I could get cash back and I'm missing out on this because I use a debit card and we went and got two credit cards. We've always paid them off plenty early. One of them is an Amazon card that gives us 5% back on Amazon purchases because we do a lot on, with Amazon Prime. And then another one is from my bank for any other purchases outside of Amazon. And both those have this cash back feature. It's not a ton of money by any means, but it also lets you build up credit if by chance at some point you do have to, to finance a, a home or something. And so that I, I have changed my view. That's one way where I I've definitely feel differently than I did. But I would say if you do get a credit card, you want to make sure that you pay it off within that month because the interest rates on them, they're incredibly high. It's incredibly foolish to have credit card debt. I don't, I don't think people actually do the math and understand because they think, well, I'm just making this small payment, but your $5,000 in credit card debt ends up being ten dollars to $15,000 over the course of that <laughs> as you pay it back over time. It adds up so fast and I despise paying late fees. I do, for the most part, use a credit card, but I do pay mine off every month as well. As we close, what is one thing, something that someone can do to turn their finances around, turn them in the right direction? What's the first step they can take or the first place they can look? The, the word that comes to mind for me is the word sacrifice. If someone is unwilling to sacrifice, then there's almost nothing I could say or the God's word could say that will benefit them. That's almost like the umbrella that everything else is under. The opposite of sacrifice is kind of entitlement, right? And so I would just say, be willing to sacrifice. And then from that flows the ability to make changes, to give up certain things, to save more, spend less. And so I would just say, be willing to sacrifice and live differently. Dave Ramsey, he has this saying, live like no one else so you can live like no one else. And what he means is live differently now so that you can live differently from everyone else in the future. And I think there's a lot of truth in that because if you live like everyone else right now, that probably means you're just going to accrue debt, spend money you don't have, and suffer for it in the long run. If we're sacrificing, it can be very painful. And so when we're having the conversation with the Lord about those five lipsticks, instead of just the one, we do have somewhere to go. We have him to turn to and just really dig down and say, what is the heart condition? What is the heart condition? What am I trying to cover up, not take responsibility for. So I think that's pretty cool that we don't have to just struggle in that alone. We can take it to the Lord. Well said. I know we've talked about what our spending habits may say about our heart condition, but what does it say about our relationship with God? Or is it the same thing? I think there's, there's a lot of similarity. Um, God is the one who tests the heart. You know, that's what the Bible says. If we trust the Lord, if we have a close relationship with him, if we're living for him, we're going to handle our finances vastly differently than if we don't. We're going to be living for eternity. We're going to have our eyes set on heaven versus an earthly perspective. The clearest picture of retirement in all of scripture is the rich fool that Jesus talked about. I think it's in Luke 12. He seems to be a farmer. He has all these crops and he says, I'll build bigger barns and bigger barns, more stuff for me. My, the words I, me, my occur like, I don't know, like 10 or 15 times in just a few verses. And then Jesus says, this man's a fool. That's why it's called the parable of the rich fool. He says, fool, your, your soul will be required of you tonight. And the point is he was just living for this life, wasn't prepared for the next life. And that's probably the best picture of a of terrible financial management where you don't think about anyone but yourself. A Christian who's been regenerated and brought to life by God's Holy Spirit and is thankful for what Christ has done for them can't help but live 
in a way that considers the Lord and how to, and how to please him. Again, the way we spend money is one of the greatest indications of our relationship with Christ. It says almost more about us than almost anything else, except for maybe our marriages and our parenting. A lot of times if a person can get to their why, it'll really motivate them. It's someplace to come back to when they've gotten off course or fallen off the financial wagon. How can they get to their why? Do you have any questions that they can prompt themselves with? That's a really good good point. We we try to do this, although we don't do it as well as we you know would like to at times with our children, which is like when our children are making decisions, but asking them why they're making those decisions to get them to think about why they acted this way, why they're spending so much time doing this. And then when you can help them see it, they become part of the solution then. They're, and so to, to help people financially and say, well, why is it important to you? You had a car that was running fine. It had no problems. It's been dependable. Why did you want to get a, a new vehicle? Tell me what's, what is behind that. And there can be good reasons. Like we had, we had a nice van. I think it was like a seven passenger van. And then we had more more kids and we got a 15 passenger van. We got another house when we kind of outgrew our other house. There are plenty of reasons, but if you can ask someone why they're making the decisions they're making or why they're spending the way they're spending, then you can help them see whether it's for good reasons. So for example, if someone said, we're thinking about moving, we're, we're looking at this new house. Well, what are some good reasons that they might look at that new house? Is that house closer to work so that the father doesn't have to have, have to spend as much time on the road and is going to have more time with his family? Is that house closer to the church that they attend and is going to allow them to be better involved in the church? Did they refinance? Is this going to lower their mortgage? Is this, you know, those are good reasons that people can, as you talk to people and hear the reasons behind their purchases, then it allows them to determine whether it's a good purchase or not. But if you ask someone and they say, well, you know, I was this one day, I just was kind of looking at my best friend's car or my best friend's house. And suddenly, you know, my house didn't look as good anymore. Or then that's pretty much a window into their heart. And that what's behind it is actually covetousness. There was one time to my wife's credit, I had purchased her something and she liked it and was thankful for it. And then she noticed that someone else had the same thing, but my wife's wasn't as nice as this friend's. And to my wife's credit, she recognized that it was what the friend had that caused her to be discontent when she'd previously been been content. And so, yeah, I think what you're saying about the why is incredibly important because that's looking to the heart and the reasons behind the decisions that we're, we're making. And so we can either have someone ask us those questions or, in the, or we can ask the Lord in our prayer lives and say, Lord, help me to understand why I'm thinking about doing this and, understand, and whether it's a godly or ungodly decision. And that's a way of digging down to and getting down to the heart of things, getting in through those layers, asking yourself the why question. But I think it also helps you determine, like a minute ago, you said that father wants to spend more time with his family. That could be a major why you would want to stick to the budget or why you would want to stick to your goal for financial freedom and however you define financial freedom. So I think that's two pretty good whys. Mm -hmm. Why am I doing this ultimately to sort through your decision-making and then ultimately to say, because I want to spend more time with my family or mm -hmm. I want peace and, and less anxiety in my life about my debt. Mm -hmm. Or if you talk about a vacation, someone said, Hey, I, I want to go on this vacation. We, we have uh, been very busy as a family. We need to relax. And it's like, well, why do you feel like for this vacation, you need to fly to Paris versus driving a few hours to whatever this campground or to visit grandparents. And it's like, that helps someone see what the purpose of the vacation is. Is the purpose of the vacation to rest, relax, and spend time together as a family? If that's the purpose, then you don't have to fly to Europe to do that, right? You don't have to spend 20 times as much money. And then you get people to see, well, I guess the reason that I really want to go to Paris, and I'm not saying people can't go to Paris or something. I'm just saying, as you're trying to diagnose why you're taking this vacation, if it is to rest, relax, and be together as a family, you can probably do that in a much cheaper way than, than everyone going to Paris. What is the first thing we need to do when we fall off the financial wagon? This might sound kind of strong, but if I would say repent, if it was something born out of sin, some of the things we've talked about, envy, discontentment, pride, those are sins. So if you make a bad decision financially, it's a sin, but I'm not saying it's the worst sin or as bad as murder or adultery or something, but it's still worthy of repentance and confessing to the Lord and saying, you know, I shouldn't have done this. I'm sorry that I did this. This was a sin. Help me to learn from it. Help me to grow from it. And then see if there's any appropriate changes 
that God wants you to make. And the world doesn't like the word repent. Sometimes some churches don't even want to use that word. It's almost like this bad word, but it's a completely biblical word that when we send the proper response to that, when we're convicted is to repent and repenting, it means nothing more than agreeing with God about what we've done wrong. If in the moment you're convicted about something you've done and God leads you to do something differently, whether it's to sell some stuff, whether it's to downsize, whether it's to give, for example, you're convicted, you know what? I didn't give like I should have last year. And now I'm convicted about giving and you repent. Well, God can lead you to give more this year and even make up for, <laughs> it's not like, well, last year is done. I can't give for last year. You can, God can lead you to give more and make up for last year's giving. And there's a difference though, between condemning yourself and God bringing you into correction. I don't think we should act out of or, or respond to our sin with further condemnation against ourselves. Yeah, I mean, uh, Romans says that there's no condemnation for those who are in uh, Christ Jesus, and that doesn't, there's a difference between self-condemnation and conviction. Conviction is a wonderful, beautiful thing. That means we're in relationship with the Lord, and His Holy Spirit has convicted us or shown us something we've done wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, what Judas experienced, because it's interesting, of everyone in Scripture, I mean, few people ever looked as sorrowful as Judas looked, but it led him to commit suicide versus repenting. And that's in, I think it's 2 Corinthians 7, 10 or 10, 7. It talks about worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow. You can have incredible worldly sorrow. I mean, courtrooms are filled with people experiencing worldly sorrow. There can be crying, tears, promises of never doing something again, and there still might not be repentance. In other words, there can be worldly sorrow without godly sorrow. Godly sorrow leads to repentance is what the Bible says. And so if you experience true sorrow, godly sorrow, then it's going to produce repentance in your life. Whereas worldly sorrow, I mean, that's just sorry you got caught. That's just sorry that the verdict was read in the, in the courtroom, and now you're going to go to jail for what you've done. Worldly sorrow is what children experience frequently when they did something wrong and they learn that they're going to get spanked. You know, So that's not the same as, as godly sorrow. But if you experience godly sorrow, then hopefully that produces repentance in your life. At what point does investing come into the picture? If you haven't paid off your debt, investing can take a set a backseat to paying off debt. But I did say earlier that I think our IRA or individual retirement or investment account is an incredible tool that's offered to us that we should try to maximize because of the, the tax benefits and, and preparation for retirement. And then that's money you set aside that you're not going to touch for years and can hopefully can hopefully grow. And so I think I think investing is very important. And along with paying off debt, when we talk about saving, hopefully we're talking about investing as well. And so I would recommend splitting our, you know, our uh, 50-50 between debt and investing. But after you paid off your debt, then the money you save up, I'd recommend 100% of the extra money going toward investing once you've, until you've maxed your individual IRA. And then after that, if you have some money left over, you can invest it. And then your, your goals for investing are going to be different based on your time horizon. I mean, are you investing for some trip? Are you investing for a few years for your children's college? Or are you investing for 20 or 30 years? Because that's going to determine whether you invest aggressively or less aggressively. But yeah, investing is a major... When we talk about saving, frequently we're talking about investing that money because everyone, I think most people know if if your money sits in a savings account, it's basically losing money because inflation is generally higher than the return you're getting on that account. So I told my mom, who's not, not real big on investing, she had money. My dad passed away unexpectedly last year, and we, we've been living with my mom, which led to some of the changes in our lives and moving around a little bit. My dad had done very well, like your husband had, and set my mom up nicely. And so she had this money, and I said, Mom, this money that's sitting in your savings is actually losing money. Can, can I tell you how to invest it or help you invest it? Because I just thought it was, it, you know, whatever percent that is, it's just not keeping up with inflation. So Very minimal. I think each mm-hmm. year on my tax return, my bank statement for income is like 67 cents. <laughs> it's very minimal, mm-hmm. um, but I don't keep money sitting in my savings account there. Let me ask you this before we close. Is there any question that I have not asked you, information that you want to share that we have not brought up? Any parting words for the listener? I may be kind of re- rehashing what we said a little bit, but finances are very spiritual. The way we handle our money, it is very spiritual. Spend time in God's word, learn what God's word says about the management of our finances. There's as much wisdom and application 
today as when many of these things were written thousands of years ago. God did not provide us a guide or provide us the Bible, and it's going to become outdated or not work as well. The principles that worked when it was written still work for us today. And so that would be, if you don't get anything else, get that it's very important to be reading God's word to learn how to live this life and do things God's way. Because God's way is really freedom, Mm -hmm. freedom to live despite frustration and pain and suffering. Scott, you've been fantastic. Thank you so much for your patience as I drug you through this very touchy subject, maybe. I don't know. Money can be sensitive. And in fact, if I could, if I could just say one, one more thing, Sherry, you know, if people want to find any more about me, my website, scottlapierre.org. And there's a gift I just want to give to your listeners. It's a short marriage read. It's called Seven Biblical Insights for Healthy, Joyful, Christ-Centered Relationships. And you can get that for free from my website. It's not a novel or anything. I hope it could be a short, sweet read for people to help them in their marriages. And if there's any questions or any ways I can pray for your listeners or serve them, I hope they reach out to me through the contact page on my website. And so thanks a lot for having me on the show, Sherry. I appreciate what you're, what you're doing for people. Thank you. It sounds like you're really covering the family from one end to the other, as far as relationship and financial. And you mentioned a couple of other things. You have books for a couple of other topics. Mm-hmm. Thank you. All right. Thanks a lot, Sherry. God bless you and your listeners. Thanks. Thank you for your time and for sharing this experience with my guest. I hope you have found encouragement for today and a deeper revelation of God's heart in the midst of pain and suffering. We'd love to have you as a subscriber to Finding God in Our Pain so that you can be connected with all my guests as they share their personal experiences and professional knowledge about pain and suffering. And because this podcast is a division of the website, A Life of Thrive, for more information and the various ways you can connect with us, please visit the website, alifeofthrive.com. I look forward to sharing more transparent stories from the hearts of women who intimately know what it means to have their world flipped upside down, their authentic struggle to make sense of it, and what recovery and healing looks like. Till then, sweet woman, remember you are not alone and that God speaks the most beautiful things in the dark.